Hi there, Tom D'Antoni with another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation at Artichoke Music. That's at 2007 Southeast Powell Boulevard. We'll have another video episode up on Thursday, October 17. Another spousal episode, this time with Shelley Rudolph and Chance Haven, and yes, they'll perform. Next week, it's an all-audio episode with Goodfoot co-owner Neil Lieborg, and today we have harmonica player and writer Kim Field, who leads one of the hottest blues bands in town, The Perfect Gentleman. I hear he has a fabulous story on D. Ford Bailey, the first African-American performer at the Grand Ole Opry, and who you may have seen on the recent Ken Burns series. Kim tracked him down one afternoon. I think Kim brought his harp with him, so let's meet him. Kim, welcome back to Artichoke. You're no stranger to this place. No. Uh, you, you just told me. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> I, I met Bob. Bob got a hold of me one day. I think he'd read my book and uh that was you know an interesting you know so he that inspired him to uh, track me down uh-huh and so uh and i've done a couple of gigs here and seen some other shows too uh-huh that's good yeah it's, we're real happy here yeah it's a really uh it's unique uh it is kind of setup here I, i'm just yeah. really impressed with the the whole scene here yeah. at Artichoke. and it's and it's it's legendary it's iconic it's been around forever it's I mean, when it when it was up on Hawthorne, you just would walk in and people would be sitting around playing music and. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's real nice, and and uh, they're real nice to us too. So, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I was just looking at uh, the lineup of your band, and you got a you got a sizzling band, man. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jeez. It, it all. I have to really thank Alan Hager uh, in a really big way we all should we all should thank alan Hager. well sure <laughs> get down on our knees every day for that yeah. guy but like um i actually i i try to play a little guitar it's uh-huh. pretty pathetic and so I, I took a guitar lesson from alan uh-huh. uh i had seen him a lot when he uh would do the tuesday night thing at clyde's yes and curtis would come down a lot and right. it was great to reconnect with curtis because i was pretty new in town uh-huh. and i i took a guitar lesson from alan and at the end of the lesson we were packing up and he goes like Kim, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's what's the deal? You don't even have a band. You've been here for a year and a half. Uh-huh. Like, wh- what's up? And I, so I was kind of shamefacedly trying to deal with that. I was like, well, Alan, you know, I'm ready. I've been doing a lot of thinking about it, and I've got some people in mind. But you've been here forever, so you tell me who I should play with. And he goes, well, hell, I'll play with you. Wow. So that was... Uh, I actually I'm kind of proud of the way I reacted to that because I jumped on it right away. Yeah. And then so yeah. we talked about a lot of other players in town, some of whom I'd met and some of whom, uh-huh. whom I hadn't. Yeah. And um, he got on the phone and made some introductions and I, I introduced myself to a couple other people too. And uh, in, in a couple of weeks, I had uh, for R&B and blues, I had the best band in town. Yeah. So have uh, you ever heard him play classical music? You know, I haven't heard him play classical music. Because he doesn't play it. Yeah. but I, Ever since he moved here from Boston. Well, even without the classical piece, yeah. he would rank as one of the most uh, amazingly versatile guitar players oh, yeah. I've ever yeah. run into. But, you know, he, he, he made a living transcribing classical tunes to guitar. Well, and he also toured for several <laughs> years with another classical guitarist in a duo right. act. You right. Know, and made his right. living that way. And has never played classical here in Portland. Well, the cool thing about Alan is he started, you know, at like 12 years old yeah. as a blues fanatic. Right. Yeah. He and With Terry, Terry Robb. Robb yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, as legend has it. So he went off to Berkeley and uh, kind of drifted into that 
Boston Conservatory classical scene uh-huh. and slayed an, uh, kind of an offhanded audition uh-huh. and uh, ended up you know, getting a degree yeah. in, in classical guitar yeah. <laughs> and touring that way. But he came back to the blues. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's not only a testament to his awesome versatility, but it's like, you know, he... He never lost track of what inspired him in the first place. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And uh, yeah, he uh-huh. can he can literally uh, do anything. Anything. Yeah. 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 And the other people in the band? Yeah. So I've got uh, Albert Rita, who's a fantastic bass player and a Philadelphia Phillies fan. Yeah. Well, he's from he's from the yes the city of brotherly love. And uh, as a baseball fan, I pretty much know. Um, <laughs> Most of the players in town and who they who they who they like to follow. Well, I've spent. A, I'm a Seattle boy myself. Oh, okay. But I, I mean, I've spent All a lot right. of time on the East Coast, and I, uh-huh. I like to have yeah. an East Coast uh, sensibility in the band. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. Albert is not only like you know the top bass guy in town, but he also brings yeah. that Philly soul. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Caustic Definitely. attitude too. So it's great. And then. Uh, we've got uh, Whit Draper on the other guitar. Didn't he used to play with Sheila Wilcoxon? I don't know about that, but he, he plays with the Sportin' Lifers. Yeah. You know, that, I think he was with Back Porch Blues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, that's that. before my time. But yeah, I, yeah. He's yeah. talked to me about that that stint. Yeah. Um, a fantastic guitar player, and I think the the key to the sound of the band and the, co- the original concept, I did like a four-piece setup for a long, long time, uh-huh. and that's a, that's a really powerful, interesting, you know, uh, way to do it. But when you have that fifth piece either piano or a second guitar, uh-huh. uh, a chordal instrument, because I play harmonica and sing, and harmonica is a totally legitimate instrument, but you can't really comp on it. Right. Uh, you can right. play rhythmic things on it, but you can't play chords. Right. And right. so uh, when you add that fifth piece, which I found with my last band in Seattle, the musical possibilities just expand <coughs> exponentially. Yeah. And, and, but it's really a tricky thing to find two guitar players who can work together. And it was really funny because I had met... Because each of them keeps tur- turning up. Well, not in this band, <laughs> they don't. I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah. kidding. But I've had that problem, believe yeah. me. Uh, there's a lot of deaf har- uh, guitar players <laughs> of our age out there now. And, and, and it tends to... They feed on each other. Yeah. But um, it was funny because I, I immediately... When, when Alan suggested maybe we start to work together a little bit when he wasn't on the road with Curtis, I said, well, you know, I'm going to want an, another guitar player. And I can only imagine how picky you would be about yeah. who that other person would be and yeah. i i had already done some gigs with wit in fact i'd played one here uh-huh. at artichoke and uh, so he was definitely the guy i had in mind and alan was like well wit draper would be good all right and so that that slipped in there like perfectly yeah and so, a drummer yeah and so uh we just made a change there and we have uh, jeff strawbridge playing drums with oh us yeah now, who's another oh, yeah. like yeah you know total vet of uh-huh. the Portland blues and R&B scene. Yeah. In fact, everybody in the band except for me and I is a, a member of the Cascade Blues Association Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Every one of them. Uh-huh. So, um, and you know, awards are don't necessarily tell the whole story. But uh, these guys, I am so I am so thrilled just to land in Portland. Yeah, which is you know a a great music town and and the music community here is so impressive like yeah. i i always admired it from a slight distance up there in seattle uh but the the perceptions i had of the portland blue uh, music scene not just blues but in uh-huh. general yeah. were more have been more than 
realized, you know, uh-huh. as I've actually experienced uh-huh. it since I uh-huh. since I moved here. And working to, with old, to, working to with, land that you know in a t- yeah. in a new town and and end up within a couple of years with a band like that. Yeah, uh, I am so complimented and so so thrilled. It's working great. with old pros is like putting on a comfortable shoe. Well, I called the band the perfect gentleman. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of irony in there for sure. But right. um, these guys are, you know, total pros. There's no. It, a lot of people have this idea, like when you're in a band, it's like Willie Nelson and all his friends yeah. on the bus, and uh-huh. you know, it's just great. Frankly, a lot of times it, it can be like you're married to four different people. Yeah. So. Uh, that combination of really stellar musicianship and no drama professionalism, uh, it's a lot harder to find than you might think. And I've got it, you know, in every every position in this band. So it's a, it's, nice. a, it's really a great thing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I'm thrilled. Good. Why did you come to Portland? Uh, because of a, a lady friend. That's Me an too. Old story, yeah. Me too, yeah. I mean, it was 22 one. years ago, but and she's long gone, but still. Oh no! Well, we're we're going strong. No, I'm so. not, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Uh. No, uh, that was it, really. Like uh, I, I've lived, you know, many places around the states. I've lived in back east near Boston. Uh-huh. I lived in Texas for a while, which was a great experience. Um, and I had been working a job. I had this job that kind of dropped out of the sky. Uh, in New York City, uh-huh. and I had gone to college in New York City, but yeah. that was a whole other lifetime ago. Yeah. And so I, I was intrigued. It was an interesting mm-hmm. job. Plus, mm-hmm. um, it was nice to kind of. I thought, you know, another stint in New York, like uh-huh. later in life with a little bit of ex- disposable income, yeah, would be kind of interesting. Uh-huh. And, and the city had completely changed since yeah. I had been there. But yeah. uh, I really enjoyed it. But uh, I started seeing a woman here in Portland, and. We did the bicoastal thing for, for never quite works. a while. Yeah. Well, we did it really well. Yeah. So that well, was good, also, good for like, you. you know, like a real uh, test. Yes. And and yeah. I thought we yeah. passed it with flying colors. So uh, <laughs> anyway, um, one day they... they What's called, the secret? They, they brought the whole team in. Uh-huh. Uh, I was working with in New York and laid us all off. Wow. Uh, but gave us a nice severance package. And That's I, nice. Uh, within three weeks, I was out here. What's the secret to a long long distance relationship like that? I'm sure everyone would like to know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, you can't do it with everybody. I yeah. think you have yeah. to, uh, like uh, my the woman I was involved with, she really hadn't spent much time in New York. So she actually uh-huh. really enjoyed New York. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. Another, the other thing that we did right, I think, was that I spent a lot of time in Portland, too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we shared the pain in terms of travel <laughs> and that kind yeah. of thing, yeah. too. But, gotcha. uh, you know, it it's a little... I guess I was in a little bit better position inviting her to New York City than to right. Dubuque, Iowa or something Yes. Like that. So, you know what I mean? I had a little bit of a, of a thing there, so I, I took advantage of it as much as I could. Were you playing much in, in New York? Not too much in New York. Yeah. It was, um, it's a pretty tough scene in New York. I, I, I have uh, a lot of friends who play music in New York, so I did yeah. a lot of sitting in, uh-huh. but I never had uh, my own band in the uh-huh. stint I was there, so... Huh. Huh. But I, yeah. I actually did a little bit of woodshedding and practicing for the first time in a few years. So. Oh, that's good. So that was good. Yeah, I tried to take advantage of it. Yeah, good. Yeah. You, do you still do you still you still do a lot of practicing? Uh, it kind of comes and goes in spurts. I uh-huh. you know I know like Alan for instance. You know he's the, an unbelievably disciplined musician who mm-hmm. practices. I think at least two hours every day. 
And uh, I certainly am not in that category, but uh, I have bursts where I'll get into, I'll get kind of consumed with a different aspect of singing or, uh-huh. or harmonica or maybe even guitar uh-huh. and, you know, kind of hit it pretty heavy. But I, I play every day, yeah. but um, not, not yeah. with the zeal. Do you, do, you, do you carry harmonica with you? I don't too much. Yeah. I used to, but uh-huh. um, I, I don't, I don't, I used to play it in the car and everything yeah. and that is really not a good idea. <laughs> so like I just, uh, and I kind of, if, if I'm playing the harmonica, I'm playing the harmonica. Yeah. I, I like to yeah. kind of be in a good space and just yeah. really focus in yeah. on it rather than but just have it to, hanging you, out of my mouth. You were a slinger, huh? Huh? You were a slinger. What do you mean? A harmonica slinger. Oh you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I um, always always armed. <laughs> well, it's true. It's the yeah. um, it's yeah. the only instrument that I mean, uh, the, its portability is like a huge part of the instrument, right? Yeah, the pocket piano. Or, yeah. you know, it's got a lot of different names. Uh-huh. It's been to both poles. It's been down the Amazon. It's <laughs> the only instrument that's made it to the top of Mount Everest, and it was the first <laughs> instrument in outer space. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, when I, I wrote this book on the history of the harmonica. Harmonica, harps, and heavy breathers. Yeah, it was originally supposed to be heavy breathing. And then oh. about two <laughs> weeks before it was supposed to go to press, uh, Simon Schuster, Schuster, the original publisher, called me and yeah. said, you know, we're, we're having second thoughts about that title, Kim. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And they go, well, people might buy a book called Heavy Breathing for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and I was like, well, who cares, you know, really? But they said, you know, you have to have harmonica in the title for searches, you know, computer right. searches. And they had right. a good point, so we ended up with yeah. this very long title. But um, <laughs> I interviewed Wally Schirra. Uh, he was one of the original seven Mercury astronauts yeah. with Alan Shepard yeah. and, and John Glenn. Uh-huh. Uh, but he lasted through the Gemini flights. And uh-huh. on a Gemini flight, he smuggled... He was an amateur harmonica player. And Honer makes a tiny little four-hole uh-huh. harmonica. You can wear it on you know, a chain around your neck. Yeah. And he smuggled one onto a Gemini <laughs> flight, which is, like, really not kosher. No. Know, with NASA. <laughs> and right. uh, And he was up there over Christmas uh, orbiting, and he pulled it out and played uh, Jingle Bells. <laughs> And he, he was really funny. He goes, you know, I thought I'd get free harmonicas for the rest of my life. And the Honer Company never even called me. What oh, the hell? man, that's <laughs> terrible. So that was pretty funny. But uh, he was quite a guy. You know, I, I would I, I would be uh, I would I would not be doing my job. If I, I, I must admit that um, uh, Bob Howard from here, from the the, the Ed Honcho here at sure. uh, at the Artichoke, um, loaned me your book and uh, said, uh, you've got to talk to, to, to Kim about D. Ford Bailey. Oh, yeah. And it just so happens that the Ken Burns series just, just got finished a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, which didn't, didn't really feature D. Ford Bailey, but right. D. Ford Bailey was in it. Right. It was in it more than Emmett Miller. But that's my own thing. Yeah, um, no, I know about him too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but the Nick Todd just never never wrote a book about D. Ford Bailey. No, no, no he never did. No, he, uh, there was one book where in, in which about Nashville, uh-huh. in which there was a chapter about D. Ford. But you met him. Yeah, and that but that's how I found him was through that book. Uh huh. Because, um, well. When, when I was 
in my 20s in Seattle, there was a record store called Filippi's Books and Well, Music. He, he was the black harmonica player from the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, that's right. So we set that on. Yeah, and uh, I first found him because there was an old, somebody gave me a 78 turntable, and uh-huh. I started getting 78. There was a store that actually sold 78s in those days, wow. back in the 70s, yeah. in Seattle, and I, I would get all these weird harmonica records. Uh-huh. And I found an RCA Bluebird record by this guy, D. Ford Bailey, Icewater Blues, you know, 1927, said harmonica solo on it. That's <laughs> all I knew. I never heard of this guy. So I bought the record. I took it home, and it was mind-bending. This guy was not only like a really good harmonica player, this guy is one of the most incredible harmonica players who ever lived, and his style is so complex and so unique. I mean, there will literally never be another guy like him, and there are very few people, I can count them on three fingers, that can Mm -hmm. really play his stuff, uh, even today. And so... I was in. I was take. I was driving around the country with with a lady friend, and she went off shopping or something. I was like in. We were in Nashville, and I was at the Country Music Hall of Fame mm-hmm. bookstore, and it, there was this book that I had run across a couple of years before, and it had the uh, street corner, the intersection where D Ford. Uh, now had a shoe shine stand because huh. he had left the Opry. He, yeah. he started on the Opry in 1925. Wow, uh, it was one of the original acts, uh-huh. and they let him go in 1941. They mm-hmm. they claimed that he refused to learn new material, but he was really a victim of a, a general modernization of the Opry that happened, yeah. you know, in the 40s uh-huh. from the down home kind of thing that started it. But D Ford was the first big star on the Grand Ole Opry. But then he, he was, I'd heard the, the, the profile of him in this book kind of depicted him as kind of embittered and reclusive, and he had this uh-huh. shoeshine stand, and he didn't really like to play for anybody anymore. But uh, for some reason I had in mind that he lived in Memphis. Oh. And so I, I found the book in the, in the Country Music Hall of Fame bookstore in Nashville, uh-huh. and I opened it up, and it was Nashville. And he lived, he wow. had a shoeshine stand at 12th and Edge Hill. So I just put the book down, walked out of the um, Country Music Hall of Fame bookstore and hailed a cab <laughs> and said, take me to 12th and Edge Hill. And he said, uh, really? <laughs> I said, yeah. yeah. He goes, okay. And so he took me across the river uh, into the black part of Nashville uh-huh. and deposited me at the corner of 12th and Edge Hill. And there was no shine stand there. Oh, The book was like six years old, so it hadn't been that long. Yeah. Uh, but there was a ancient drugstore there on the corner uh-huh. that had clearly been there for a long, long time. Yeah. And I, I walked in there, and there was an elderly black gentleman behind the counter, the pharmacist. And I said, um, you know, this is kind of awkward. It's kind of off the wall. But I, I, I'm here looking for a man named D. Ford Bailey. And I, I think he used to have a shine stand here. And he goes, oh, yeah, D. Ford was here for 40 years. you know." <laughs> and I said, well, where did he go? And he said, well, they... They tore down his shoeshine stand to build a housing project, and he moved right in. He's, he's right there across the street. <laughs> he lives in that building. So I went across the street, and this, this is 77, and they actually, it was a different era. They actually had a reader board in the lobby uh-huh. with every tenant's name and their apartment number. Yeah. And so I, um, I, I see D. Bailey, like 8B. Yeah. So I, I go take the elevator up to the eighth floor and I find 8B and I knock on the door. <laughs> D Ford was 
uh, Deford uh, came down with polio when he was three years old. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, it left him, uh, he was a, basically a hunchback. Mm. And uh, it mostly affected his spine. And mm-hmm. he, he was about four foot ten. Wow. And uh, he just opens this door and like, like some other vertically challenged people, he was sort of a, he, comp- he compensated by being an incredible clothes horse. Huh. So he's just home, you know, uh-huh. during the day. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I have not announced myself. I'm just huh. uh, knocking on the door. And he, this guy opens the door and he's standing there in this like white brocade kind of shirt with <laughs> red garters on the sleeves. Nice. And, uh, black slacks just creased you know <laughs> and these blinding patent leather shoes on wow. this is just what he like relaxes in yeah right? yeah and he he and i sort of stammer out an introduction that I, you know i'm basically i've come all the way from seattle washington just to meet you you know kind uh-huh. of thing and he, he invites me in and he's got a one room apartment and he's got a a curtain on a rod uh-huh that he uses to divide the room into two rooms, like a, you know, kind of a kitchen and yeah. a sitting room. Yeah. And so he takes me into the sitting room and we sit down and we start talking. And, um, you know, it's like, I, you've come so far to, to hear you play that harmonica. Oh. <laughs> and he's like, well, I, I do play the banjo. <laughs> And I said, well, really? That's interesting. And he he goes off behind the curtain, Uh rummages around for a couple of minutes, comes back with this banjo, and he sits down and he starts playing it. And like me, he's Uh left-handed. so But he's playing a five-string banjo upside down. And and there's that drone key that's totally in your way. Yeah. If you play, and so he's moving all around this key and playing really nice, like old claw hammer kind uh-huh. of banjo, but uh-huh. on a five string. Yeah. And then he, he puts that down, and we're chatting about this, that, and the other. And I'm, well, I sure would like to hear you play that harmonica, D Ford. And he goes, Well, you know, I, I do play the guitar. <laughs> and I was like, Really? <laughs> oh, that's great. And then he goes off behind the curtain, and yeah. then there's more rummaging around. He comes back, and he's got this guitar yeah. and again he plays it left-handed but he plays it completely upside down so yeah. did, like elizabeth cotton or something uh-huh. he didn't uh-huh. restring it and he plays great he played um john jackson's going to kansas city uh-huh. and then he sings and and wow. he's got this beautiful kind of light kind of a light voice but a really uh-huh. nice singing voice i uh-huh. had no idea he even sang yeah and then he puts that down and we're chatting again about the weather or whatever and i'm like gee i Sure would like to. I don't know whether I'm supposed to lay a twenty dollar bill on the table. That yeah. seems like inappropriate. Right? Yeah, yeah. But like the book said that he would only play for cash on the barrelhead, uh-huh. and I'm kind of I'm really at a loss. And then I had a little inspiration. So I said I had a harmonica with me. Uh-huh. Those were the days when I actually did travel with one. So yeah. I said, D Ford, um, you know, a long time ago I got that record of yours, Ice Water Blues, and uh, I I tried to learn it on the harp so Mm -hmm. um, why don't let me play that for you and uh, you can kind of give me some some tips or something Mm -hmm. and uh, because i knew this would light a fire under him because i I played a really (laughs) mediocre heavily truncated kind of half-ass version of this tune (laughs) and I start. I started into it, and I looked up, and his face was—he was clearly struggling, listening <laughs> to me, right? And it worked like a charm. When I finished, he just said, "Well, um, you've got some of that in there, kinda." 
okay, <laughs> but let me show you how it's done. Oh, man. And then he pulled out that harmonica, and he ended up playing for about 45 minutes. Oh. And um, I knew less about... I left that apartment knowing less about how he did what he did on the harmonica than when I went in. Because <laughs> um, there's some great YouTube videos of him you can see. Uh -huh. uh, there's one from a, an old-timers night at the Grand Ole Opry in the 60s. And he he played with one hand. He, he held the harmonica in his, only in his right hand. Uh -huh. And he held his left hand, uh, he held his right uh, elbow with his left hand uh -huh. so he just played with one hand so he didn't do any of the hand effects that most harmonica players of his generation were experts Sonny Terry and yeah. all that wah-wah stuff yeah didn't do any of that stuff and he just he just blows and there's no movement anywhere <laughs> you can't like um Charlie Musselwhite told me once that Will Shade, who was with the uh, Memphis Jug Band in the uh -huh. 20s, a harp player, yeah. told Charlie, you know, he's, the harp's like a blind man's instrument. You can't see what the hell's going on in there. Yeah. And D, D Ford, uh, there's no movement when D Ford played. Uh -huh. So there's just no clue at all about <laughs> what he's doing. And he's playing the most complicated stuff you've ever heard. He, he could literally play like three distinct rhythms at the same time. Wow. I, I mean, you know, it's, I still can sit in a dark room and listen to that guy and uh -huh. just be, uh -huh. you know, on my knees with wow. frustration trying to figure out what he's wow. doing. So, so that was amazing. And then, um, I said, uh, D Ford, I, I, I hate to impinge upon you again and ask you another <laughs> favor, but, uh, I don't have any camera with me today. This is before cell phones, right? Yeah. But uh, my girlfriend has a camera, and uh, if you wouldn't mind, I I would really appreciate it if I could just go out and and find her and bring her back, and and have her take a picture of us. You know, that would just uh -huh. be really really special for me. And he goes, Oh yeah, that that'd be fine, you know. <laughs> and so I I did that. I left and uh, re reconnected with my girlfriend and uh -huh. brought her over to Twelfth and Edge Hill. Wow. And we went up and we knocked on the door and D Ford had done a complete uh, <laughs> costume change. Like he had a, he had a white, another white shirt yeah. with a string tie yeah. and a preacher's kind of black frock coat jacket <laughs> and a big 10 gallon hat. Wow. So I have this great photograph of me and D Ford uh, from that day, but it was just like, um, it was one of the two or three most amazing musical experiences I've ever had. And it was just like touching base with, you know, a whole other epic of history. Yeah. You know? Like when you went into yeah. D Ford's apartment, you were, it was like you were in, it was like 1910 or something. Wow. And, 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 uh, I went to see Ken Burns, uh, about two months ago. Uh -huh. He came to Portland. He did a tour, like previewing the, yeah. the country uh, music thing. And uh, which I still haven't seen because I was in Europe for the last couple of weeks. I yeah. just got back. And so um, he showed a picture of D Ford in his preview. So I had high mm -hmm. hopes yeah. that he would at least mention him. And he also talked about uh, the reality, which is that um, the period, what we call music is just yeah. recorded music. Correct. That's like the tip of the iceberg because right. that's the only stuff that still exists yeah. and we can refer to. Yeah. And even in the earliest days, 
records were sort of um, steered in a way. Like, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> what else is new? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, uh, and um, D Ford talked to me about how he came from a whole family of musicians, several uh-huh. generations of, of black musicians, uh-huh. you know, from slavery times. Yeah. And they all play, they, you, you know, the best gigs were playing for the, the white audiences, you right. know. Uh, and right. so they all learned jigs and reels and waltzes yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. They could yeah. play, you know, uh, the whole repertoire. Uh-huh. And uh, D Ford had a lot of that in, in his playing. He, he did uh-huh. like um, lots of popular tunes. And um, wasn't he wasn't in no way a straight blues player or anything. Uh-huh. But... Uh, he called his music black hillbilly music. And uh, there was a uh-huh. shared repertoire. Uh-huh. You have blacks and whites living in in the in the boondocks, oh, yeah. you know, in the South. Yeah. Uh, and they're playing music and they're uh, running into each other and they're gigging t- together in a certain to a certain extent. Right. But they're definitely uh, cross fertilizing each other. Uh-huh. And uh it, it was a just an ama- a really interesting period of time. And then by the twenties the marketing departments in these record companies had already kind of figured out yeah. these categories, hillbilly and race records. Yeah. So that yeah. Uh, buyers could know just by what label the record was on, uh-huh. whether it was a black performer or a white yeah. performer. Yeah. But, uh, but that was sort of an artificial construct. Uh-huh. Uh, in some ways that the record company sure. picked up. Well, you know. Uh, so I was... I it's was, always the marketing people. <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to dump on them, but uh, they had something it's so to easy. do with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know, I, was, I was really cheered that uh, it seemed like uh, Ken Burns was at least going to bring that up and talk about that cross-pollinance. Because the first country music star is Jimmy Rogers, and he's a total blues man, like... Yes. He did a lot of sentimental tunes too, but all his hits were those blues. Well, the Tatchis book, yeah, where Dead Voices Gather, is all about Jimmy Rogers versus Emmett Miller. Yeah, exactly. You know, and Emmett Miller it comes right out of that. Um, yeah, that uh, that tradition of you know, the minstrel show. Minstrel show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and and Emmett Mill and Bob Wills comes right out of Emmett Miller. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so it's and yeah. Hank Williams is a, a stone right. blues guy too. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there's lots of uh, d- discussion in that book about you know who who did the fir- the blue yodel first? Was it Emmett Miller or was it Jimmy Rogers? Right. You know. Yeah. I don't think he ever resolved it. I don't think he ever resolved anything in that book, but <laughs> yeah. But the, <laughs> but it's part of his books charm. are always fun to read. Yeah, so it's part of his part of his charm. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, this is wonderful. It's, you know, the, the mythology is wonderful. It's 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 ne- never ending, and it's always interesting. And that was a great story. That was a fabulous fucking story. Let me well, tell you. Ac- and also, <laughs> like in terms of the, compare it to the, ch- the one chapter in that one book I had found, yeah. where they they described D Ford as being very uh, bitter and uh-huh. uh, reclusive. And yeah. like he was in no way that. Wow. Uh, the day, you know, the afternoon I found. Well, I guess that's probably the result of how he was approached by the author. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, D. Ford had a really tough thing because he, he, he was a, he was black. Yeah. He was the only black guy on the Opry until Charlie Pride in 1971. Yeah. <laughs> so he, and and he was a tiny little hunchback. So they they treated him very much as a mascot. The chick, the chick Webb of the harmonica. Yeah, but they treat yeah. Chick Webb. You know, at least. 
Oh, he was a band leader. Yeah, he was a band leader <laughs> yeah. in that Harlem right. Renaissance period. Right. They, right. they definitely, on the Opry, they definitely treated him as a uh, mascot. Oh, and geez. it was there's a demeaning aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. But he was so big, he had more fan mail than any. He was on the Opry for 10 years before, before Roy Acuff ever showed up, right? <laughs> and so when Roy and uh, especially Bill Monroe, when they first got to the Opry, the Opry was Friday and Saturday nights, uh -huh. and then the rest of the week you toured around Nashville yeah. in these yeah. little package shows, yeah. and they all hired D Ford huh. uh, on their package shows because D Ford would dare, guarantee a drawn crowd, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, Bill Monroe talks about uh, there's a great book called Boss Men uh -huh. by uh, Rooney. Uh, what's his first name? Uh, and it's about Bill Monroe and Muddy Waters. Uh -huh. And in the Bill Monroe section, uh, Bill Monroe talks about taking D Ford out on the road with him, but he would have to find D Ford a room right. in a black home or something right. wherever they would stay. Yeah. But he he made yeah. sure that he drove he drove D Ford around until they found a, a spot for him for the wow. night. Uh, but uh, uh, it was pretty uh. rough. What a world. Yeah. <laughs> so who was your first harmonica hero? James Cotton. Ah, I was a 17-year-old trumpet player. Uh, really? Yeah, I played <laughs> trumpet all through school, so I definitely, uh -huh. you know, have a strong predilection to uh, wind instruments. As uh -huh. Alan Hager will tell you, I have zero talent on the guitar. I just don't have that <laughs> dexterity thing. Yeah. Um, and I went to see in the the Rock and Roll Hall in Seattle in the 60s, late 60s, was Eagles Auditorium. Uh -huh. which is now the Act Theater up there in Seattle. But it was a big, huge auditorium with no seats in it huh. uh, and a tiny little balcony. And um, in, I grew up in the suburbs in Seattle, and, you know, when you're 16, you get your license, and that is like a mm -mm -mm -mm. that the whole world opens up. Get out of jail. Yeah. So uh, we started going out and around, and somebody said, you know, there's these rock shows down at Eagles. Let's mm -hmm. go check one out. Mm -hmm. So... I think we went we went down there. I think the birds were playing. Uh -huh. So uh, saw the birds and, but that was great. But it was really the yeah. whole scene. It was uh -huh. like nothing like we'd ever seen before. Because Seattle was still a, uh -huh. in the '60s was a pretty like conservative Scandinavian fishing town. And, uh -huh. You know, airplanes. Yeah, and um, kind of strict, pretty straight laced. Mm -hmm. And this place was wild. Like. You got in a line with all these, and there were a lot of militant hippies from the hate yeah. that had already abandoned San right. Francisco because it was right. it was you know gentrified or right. something or it, right. it had gone wrong. So yeah. they came up to Seattle, <laughs> and they're still up in Bellingham, you know. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. um, so we got we got in line with all these hippies, and uh, they all have cotton sleeping bags under their arms. <laughs> and we're like, what's with that? So we, we finally got up these stairs, and we finally entered the auditorium, and then there's no chairs, so. <laughs> They would just roll their sleeping bags out, oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, there would be a gallon of wine in there, <laughs> and uh, like you know, cheese and bread, and yeah. Uh, yeah. a lid of marijuana, uh -huh. and uh, mm -hmm. they would just rack, you know, get their space. And there was like an opening act, local band, an up and coming band with one or two albums, and a headliner. And then <laughs> they would repeat the whole thing again. Wow! So it was like music from eight till two in the morning. Wow! And by midnight. A lot of wild stuff was going on. I'm sure they had the light shows, and so yeah. I remember driving back that night to the suburbs, you know, uh -huh. with my friends, and we're like, "We don't care who is here, <laughs> who's playing. We're here every weekend." Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so uh, we hit the blues revival because you know they would play uh -huh. the you know uh, the, 
Whiskey A Go Go, uh-huh. Fillmore, Portland, Eagles, uh-huh. yeah. and Vancouver. Yeah. So um, we benefited from that blues revival that Bill Graham was like engineering down there in San Francisco. Yeah. So the next show I saw was Albert King. Oh. And uh, he. Uh, he did that live wire blues power record oh, that yeah. was done that year. So I yeah. heard that whole show live. I shook hands with him one time. <laughs> His hands were like enormous pillows. Oh man, he was like <laughs> about six four. You know, yeah. he was just massive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he just blew my mind. I really didn't know blues, and uh-huh. I didn't really at that point. I didn't. After that, I didn't care. I don't know what it was, but it was. It really was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, years later, I was doing a gig at Jazz Alley in Seattle with some horn players, and somehow this came up, and I went into that story, and, and this uh-huh. guy, trumpet player, goes, "Oh, I played trumpet on that show," because <laughs> he, he like a, he picked up a horn section in Seattle, yeah, 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 yeah. and I said, "Oh, really? What was that like?" He goes, "Well, I, I took acid. I dropped some LSD, <laughs> and they had, we had charts and stuff, and I was doing okay. I did okay. You know, it wasn't you know." I, yeah. It was a couple of iffy moments, but I, you know, I was doing all right, and I was feeling no pain. I'll tell you, you know. And then I was in the the back room between shows, uh-huh. yucking it up with everybody, and he said, like, boom, the door flew open. Oh and boy! There's Albert King in the door. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to no. get him mad at you. And he's he's scanning the room, and oh. he spots this trumpet player. Oh jeez! And he he just goes right to him. And he said, he grabbed me by the shirt and he slid me up the wall and he held me there. And he said, you're messing up my show Whoa. and it's going to stop like right now. Well, he was known for stopping in the middle of tunes and yelling at, at, oh, yeah. at people in his band. So I was like, well, wow, what was that like? And he goes, man, I almost swallowed my heart. Oh, no. Yeah, he's just like. He, he was just so, yeah. so terrified. <laughs> One of the great things about James Cotton, or the many great things about James Cotton, was that he had the second career after he, could, after he couldn't sing anymore. Yeah, you know, that was really a shame because you know, well, yeah, he was a really underrated singer. I know, but still, I mean, he still wrote great songs. I mean, I remember the, his last album, he had a song about blues is good for you, and it, was, it turned out to be a rant against health food. <laughs> and he goes yeah, wasn't a big believer goes, in that goes, for sure. Eda mommy, Eda yo mommy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he uh you know, he, he was smart. He got Daryl Newlish and some yeah. other guys and, yeah, and yeah. they carried on, you know. Yeah. Like what, what And he was still do? playing. Yeah. Yeah. He still played great. But <laughs> I think about a month or two after I saw Albert King, yeah. I went to Eagles and it was James Cotton. Oh boy. And um was that was he was going all over the all over the, the room with yeah he was go outside I just figured it out yeah. recently yeah. he was thirty five years old wow. when I saw him and uh-huh. so he he was the most energetic performer I've ever seen or yeah. one of them yeah and he used to just he used to run all over the stage and he had the long cord thing and he yeah. went down yeah. into the audience and yeah. he did he had this big harmonica showcase number called the creeper that he show off tune that he uh-huh. did and he was doing somersaults in the <laughs> middle of that song like while he's playing the song and uh but really it was he he played a slow blues and he's playing through a fender twin like you know not long after that he he ended up just playing through the pa yeah for the rest of his career and he always sounded good but cotton yeah, on a on yeah. an amplifier was just really something <laughs> and and he turned up the reverb and he 
he did a song from one of his Verve albums called Blues in My Sleep. Uh-huh. And it's just a harmonica instrumental, slow blues in the echo chamber. Oh, boy. And he cycles through all the all these different harmonica positions and plays huh. a little chromatic in uh-huh. there, too. Uh-huh. And But it was, he, he had this sound, and I was like, I had no idea you could get anything like that out of a harmonica. I was just uh-huh. like, what is happening here? So what did, is he doing? Did you go buy a harmonica after that? Yeah, I went and bought a C Marine band like the next day. <laughs> and uh, and I started, you know, and I, I had quit the band my senior year and I was looking for something else and, you know, kind of thinking about guitar or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, But luckily I picked up the harp and then uh, had it. A f- girlfriend who was really into Butterfield and she turned me oh, on to him. Oh, lucky you. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and I made that, but I, you know, within three months I had that Best of Muddy Waters album. So, I, and I uh, got into Little uh, Walter and all that. Uh-huh. So, um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I started playing. And then about a year later, I went off to college and I went to New York, New York City to go to college. Uh-huh. And, um, where'd you I, go? I went to Columbia. Uh huh. That was that's a whole story in and of itself. Oh, being of a kid from the, I'd never been east of Wyoming. Oh boy! And I just flew out there for <laughs> freshman week, and I was like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! What have I done? What's this?" Uh, and New York was at at its nadir. Then. Oh this yeah, this is the early seventies. Yeah, it was absolutely. Mean, it was it was thrilling. Yeah, it was a mean, <laughs> rough place. I loved it, and because um, I'm I'm from Baltimore. Oh, you are okay. So I was up there all the time. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it was great for me, you know, to yeah. to go and have that experience, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, uh, and Scorsese captured every minute of it in Taxi Driver. Yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> and uh, I ran into a couple of guys in college who played guitar, and uh, uh-huh. ran into this guy Louis Erlanger, who ended up in the band Mink Deville. Huh. And they were they were a big band on the East Coast and in Europe. Mm-hmm. Did about three albums for Capitol, but he's really just a Jimmy Reed guy, uh-huh. John Lee Hooker. And so yeah. we hooked up and then we found a singer and uh, and then we had an acoustic trio and then we found a rhythm section and went electric. Uh-huh. And um, then I met Paul Osher, who uh-huh. was the first uh, white guy in Muddy's band. Yeah. And playing harp in the Muddy Waters band is like playing first tenor in Count Basie's orchestra. Right? Yes. I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate gig. Right. And so um, Paul had, when I got to New York, Paul had just left Muddy's band. And uh, he's from Brooklyn, and he had moved back to Brooklyn uh-huh. and was playing as Brooklyn Slim. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy at Columbia in my same class. Uh, I used to see him walking around. He was walking around all the time. He, he had a harmonica in his mouth uh-huh. 24-7. And he's playing, and every week or two I'd run into him. But he'd be—he was playing blues, and he was twice as good every couple of weeks as the last time I'd heard him. <laughs> he was just making this trajectory, and I was like, I finally introduced myself. It was yeah. this guy Dave Waldman, uh-huh. and he said, uh, "Yeah, I'm taking lessons from Paul Osher, and if you if you <laughs> want to learn how to play blues harp, you should definitely catch this guy." Wow. So I had a couple of weird run-ins with Paul at gigs, pestering for lessons, and he kind of blew me off for for huh. a while. And I finally convinced him to give me a lesson at some music store down in Brooklyn. And uh, huh. he he showed me the tongue blocking uh-huh. thing, which is which I wasn't using at all. Like ah. I was uh-huh. just what they call pursing or puckering. So uh-huh. if you're playing a single note, you just purse your lips on that one hole uh-huh. 
and play. But when you play the blues style, you don't do that. You use this tongue blocking thing. And uh, I had no idea about it. And so Paul showed Why, look what, look, look what you just I pulled just out of your pocket. just happened to have one. Well, mainly because I think I asked you to bring it. <laughs> but if there's like this tune, uh, Little Walter you know, broke out with this hit called Juke. It's uh -huh. a harmonica instrumental. Well, if you just, what I was doing, I was listening to the notes that he was playing. Uh -huh. And so I was playing them as single notes, like pursing my lips uh -huh. you know, over each hole. So it's kind of like, I can't really do it that well anymore, but yeah. it's something like. <laughs> but Paul got me in this music room yeah. and he pulled out the harp and he went. And so what Little Walter really was doing was every four holes in most places on a diatonic harmonic is the same note an octave higher, uh -huh. like the one and the four. But you can put the tongue and block the two holes in the in between and uh -huh. just play the clean octave So what Little Walter was playing was the octave, was the melody, but as octaves. <laughs> and so, and then there's all kinds of things you can do with the tongue, like yeah. slap it. Uh -huh. To make it like punchy. And then you put yeah. that over a microphone. Oh boy! And yeah, yeah. It's, it's like uh, if you just pucker, you're kind of. It's like you're playing one-handed piano, kind of in a way. Wow! But the you can really get a. And the drawback of the harmonica is that it's a little tiny instrument, not made to be resonant at all. So uh -huh. it can sound thin and shrill, and so the tongue blocking method just sort of opens your whole thing up and adds a whole different layer to it. So. Luckily, I got with Paul, and he showed me that, and then it was kind of up to me after that. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> well, I still, you know, he plays tongue block 100% of the time. I, yeah. I don't quite yeah. do that. Uh -huh. Like, if I'm on uh -huh. the very bottom, a lot of times I'm, I'm yeah. still puckered. But yeah. but I play about 80% tongue block now. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, Mitch Kashmar, uh -huh. who's like a world-class... Uh, harmonica player, one of my heroes. He lives here in Portland, and he he plays tongue blocked 100 percent of the time. Huh. Huh. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's sort of the secret to that big sound that separates yeah. the men from the boys. Kind yeah. of. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, listen. Thank you for coming in. Good. Would, would since you got the thing out, you could could you feel like playing a little bit? Just take us out. Oh sure, I could do something here. That'd be great. See. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. All the all the information about uh, your upcoming gigs will be on right right here on the page. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, this has we, been terrific. Oh, oh, Tom, I really appreciate you having me. It's been a great conversation. So yeah. maybe we'll do it again sometime. Good.